Well, good morning, Cedar Valley. Welcome here. It's, uh, the sunshine is out. And I think for the first time in a long time, I opened my eyes this morning and saw the blue sky outside. And I was like, oh, warmth at last. Hopefully this afternoon's as warm as it looks outside. Hi, my name is Justin. And I'm Cheryl. And uh, we're here just to get our service started this morning. This is your first time here, welcome. We're really glad to see you. Uh, if you're joining us on campus, please find someone with a lanyard and give them your information and let them know what brought you here. If you're joining us um, online, we'd like to hear from you too and just send us a comment at hello at cedarvalley.ca. The, uh, the best ways to stay informed uh, about what's going on in our community and here at church is to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or signing up for our weekly email. And you can do all those things through our website at cedarvalley.ca. And while you're there at cedarvalley.ca, you'll also find ways to give financially to the world and the ministry of Cedar Valley Church. We've been so blessed by our online and on-campus community to continue reaching, teaching, and bringing the gospel into the city of Mission. Yeah, thank you so much for your financial faithfulness and any other way that you've committed to uh, just being a part of our church community. Um, in relation to that, just a huge thanks to anybody that came to our work day on Saturday. I just I can't say how uh, not emo almost emotionally overwhelming it was just to have so many people participating in just little tasks around the church here. Cleaning our windows. Yeah, round of applause for you guys and anyone else that joined us. That was really great just an opportunity to clean up our Christmas decorations and kind of step into a new season as we move closer to spring here. Mm -hmm. It was so good to see so many of you out here. Um, many of you that I hadn't seen for a while and mm -hmm. I'd like to see even more of you. If you're sitting at home on your couch, please know that I miss you. Mm -hmm. uh, so here's a reminder, just keep your ears and eyes open to our emails and our social media posts so that you can hear about other opportunities to come out to work days or other events that are going on around here so that we can spend a little bit more time together working alongside one another. Um, we're going to get the service started here shortly, being led in a time of worship singing with some music. There'll be lyrics on the screen and we invite you to join us in whatever way you're comfortable, standing or sitting, either one works. It's all fine. If you're at home, you can stand up and do whatever you want to do. <laughs> you can even do it on your stationary bike. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and after that, we're going we're gonna to join together with, for a short kids lesson. And you'll see, I think you'll see it on the screen here. For all of us joining online, there will be a, there will be a, a, a kids lesson for you and those of us joining us here with, with kids, there will be a service downstairs designated for them. And uh, just a reminder for parents dropping off and checking in their kids, just uh, check in at the station at the back of the church. And if you need some help with that or you've never done it before, please just connect with somebody in the lobby. And after that, we'll have the next message from Pastor Grant in our series on the book of Galatians called Jesus Plus Nothing. And uh, as we move into our service, I just want to uh, enter into a time of prayer. We want to be a church that prays and pray, prays over the people in our congregation, but also for, for the people in our community as well. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, our life should be a reflection of our prayer life, and, uh, and we want to enter into that this morning as an act of obedience, a desire to be in 
in your presence and also to bring things that are on our hearts um, that we need to pray over. Heavenly Father, we just have many, many people that are dealing with health issues right now, specifically um, Harry and Gladys, and they're still moving through just being a part in some ways and also just, uh, I also pray for their family as they navigate um, what to do next and, and pray over that family. Same thing for Don and Eleanor as they are separated and, I, and health for Abe Neufeld as well. Uh, Lord, we, we also are a community of believers that, that are urgently seeking a new leader and we want to do this well, and we want to. We want uh, you to bring the appropriate lead lead pastor into this, into this body of believers. Someone that uh, can help us and inspire us with your teaching. With with, uh, um, yeah, just to uh, to step alongside us. Also, it's no news to anybody here, but. Sometimes it's uh, whenever you're searching for a new place to live, it is challenging to say the least. It can be expensive, it can be overwhelming, and so I just pray for those that are looking for a new place to live, whether it's rent or, or buying a new house or whatever that op whatever that situation may look like. I just uh, I, pr I pray over those situations that you would lead lead those people into the place where they need to be. And God, I just ask for your Holy Spirit to move here this morning as we enter a time of worship. And may our actions and our words and our music, whatever, we are, whatever we're doing this morning, be, in, be inspiring to others and glorifying to you. And I ask this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing. There will be music on the screen this morning. And uh, thanks so much for joining us.
Say. Yeah. 
Thanks for joining us in worship. This is a time in the service when we are going to do some ministry for the kids in our church. We have kids church happening downstairs, Cedar Valley Kids, this morning, which is really exciting. If you're joining us online, we also have a video we're going to play for you in just a moment. Uh, just to communicate God's word, because right now we believe it's a core priority for us to make sure that we as a church are raising our kids uh, and guiding them towards God and helping them understand God and uh, see that because our world has so many stories and influences and everything like that. So kids, if you've got a name tag, perfect, you're ready to go. Parents, if uh, this is one of your first times here, we do a sign-in system just to make sure that your kids are safe. You can find somebody, one of the volunteers wearing a lanyard at the back to get them checked in. Otherwise, right now, kids, you can head on to the back corner, just that direction, see Allison, one of your teachers this morning. And if you're joining us online, we've got a video just as a teaser for some of the ministry that's happening. And parents, if you're online at home right now too, you can head to our website, cedarvalley.ca, and get a more full lesson to engage in faith discussions with your kids at home. The Bible, it's 66 books of history stories, letters, and poetry that fit together to form God's one big story. The epic adventure of how he created us and loves us so much that he made a way to rescue us. As we travel through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we discover people who met God and found their lives changed forever. Now, for an amazing story, inspired by the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 even though Jesus was on this earth for 33 years, there's still not much we know about his first 30 years. We do know that he visited Jerusalem for the Passover feast with his parents. He learned carpentry skills from his father, Joseph. And when he was about 30, he went down to the Jordan River and asked his cousin, John, to baptize him in the water. It is right for us to do this. It carries out God's holy plan. As Jesus rose from the water, God's voice called out from heaven, This is my son, and I love him. I am very pleased with him. It was an incredible way for Jesus to begin his ministry. After 40 days in the wilderness alone with God, Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Spirit of God. Anytime he visited a new town, he went to the place of worship, the synagogue, to teach the people. You are the light of the world. Isn't he just the bee's knees? Everywhere Jesus went, people were amazed and praised his teaching. That is, until he got to Nazareth, the town where he had grown up. Well, if it isn't Carpenter Boy Jesus. Hey man, where you been? We hear you talk real big now. On the Sabbath day, Jesus went into the synagogue. An attendant handed him a rolled papyrus. The scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who lived hundreds of years before Jesus, and God had spoken to Isaiah about a Messiah who had come to rescue God's people, and Isaiah had written down every word. Watch that papyrus as you unroll it, a bit crackly. Jesus stood before the crowd of worshipers and unrolled the scroll until he came to the right place. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to announce the good news to poor people. He has sent me to announce freedom for prisoners. He has sent me so that the blind will see again. He wants me to set free those who are treated badly. And he has sent me to announce the year when he will set his people free. There was silence as Jesus rolled up the scroll and sat back down. Everyone stared. 
Today, this passage of scripture is coming true as you listen. <gasps> Jesus hadn't just read some dry, dusty, ancient words. Jesus had declared that he was God's Messiah, that he was there to announce good news and bring freedom to the poor, the hurting, and those who had been mistreated. Well, he's Joseph's son, isn't he? He can't be the Messiah. What I'm about to tell you is true. A prophet is not accepted in his hometown. Words are easy. He calls himself a prophet? I studied with him on those benches right over there. Thinks he's something special because he can read a scroll. All around the synagogue, people rose to their feet, glaring. They turned on Jesus. You are not welcome here anymore. That's right. We don't need you making things up. The people were so angry they forced Jesus out of the synagogue. He allowed them to herd him straight through the village all the way to a cliff on the edge of town. Get rid of him! Throw him down! But Jesus simply turned and looked at the people, sorrow in his eyes. The men and women that he'd known and loved growing up wouldn't accept who he was. The crowd couldn't face Jesus. In their anger, they had missed the whole point that Jesus had come to make things right for those who were hurting and overlooked. Jesus walked right through the crowd, away from the cliff edge. They parted to let him go through. Then he left Nazareth and went on to Capernaum where he continued to carry out his mission. All right, I actually think it's really fun that we get to see those kids' stories, just a snippet of it as part of the adult service up here, right? Because there's such good things that we can learn. Uh, There's often more energy and effort put into making them tasteful and exciting. And this is just a representative of what the kids are getting downstairs. All right, so good morning, everyone. My name is Grant, currently the pastor here at Cedar Valley Church. But we have now officially posted our, uh, the listing for uh, lead pastor. Uh, we're doing a search for this church, and uh, it's out there. If you're curious about it, you can check it out on our website, cedarvalley.ca. There's an about section, and there's like a work with us tab, and you get to see the page there. We've thrown it out to a few different ministry community postings. And um, just as a reminder, too, with that and with this uh, season of transition, as we're kind of taking big leaps forward in faith, uh, living out our new mission and vision and values as a church. Uh, We have a leadership board that is accessible and is ready and willing to talk with you about any questions, any uh, things that you just want to discern or dialogue or just discuss with, or even to show some support. That would be a huge thing too. Just meet with, show some support, share your visions and hope of where we're going as a church as well. Uh, You already met Justin and Cheryl this morning as they welcomed you to church. We've got Chad at the back in the sound booth. We've got Michelle and Gail and Pam as well. Uh, Yeah, great leadership team and there for you to talk with as well. But here's a challenge I want to give to all of you, is to pray during this season. uh, We started this morning off as well with prayer. We prayed over the search as well. But this is a thing where what we need to be doing is being regularly in prayer for this. Write a note, make a sticky note of it, put it on your fridge or your front door, wherever you track notes. I put notes in my backpack and forget about them and grab them and find out I missed that a week ago. So... Don't do that, but put a note in your house, talk, like pray about it regularly because what we need to be doing is preparing ourselves, having God enter into this time. Uh, it, it 
takes a little bit. We're opening ourselves up as a church, as people, to somebody new to come in and lead us in our mission as a church. It involves a discerning search team to go through applications to gauge the character and fit of potential applicants as well. And this process will involve you being a open-minded, open-hearted church, being willing to embrace somebody in and also just be fully involved in this team. And that has to start with prayer. So that's the challenge. Okay, Galatians. We are in a series in Galatians called Jesus Plus Nothing. That's the theme that the author of this book, which is actually a letter. So the author, Paul, wrote this as a letter to Christians in ancient Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, kind of like landmass country area. Um, about three-quarters of the way through the Bible, if you've got a physical Bible with you, we're going to be reading through some more of it this morning. If you've got the app, search up Galatians. And last week, thank you for joining in our Bible study Sunday. We took the opportunity of having January month with five Sundays this year, and we took that fifth Sunday and did something a little bit different. We wanted to break the habit of what we typically do for church, because church isn't just Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, somebody welcomes you here, we sing some songs, you listen to me talk for a while, you go home. That's actually not church. It's a fun way of doing church. We found it really effective. We like doing that. We like gathering together that way. But we also want to, as a church, disrupt that a bit and not just make it become a habit. So months with five Sundays, we're experimenting, we're changing stuff up. So last week we did a Bible study, if you're just joining us in this week, just as a recap, uh, where we went through this next section of Galatians, which is focusing on the Apostle Paul, some of his testimony, some of what has brought him to writing this letter and what brought him into planting and communicating with churches in Galatia. And uh, so there was a little guide out, and we just invited you to join in wherever you're at, whether it was at home, by yourself, with a group of people. Some people came here to the church. I heard a few stories and uh, reflections from groups that did these Bible studies. Who, who had a chance to partake in that? Is it good? Yeah, not a ton of hands. Okay, well, my next question then might not work. Who brought their, uh, the worksheet that we made for it with all your notes? Because we're going to do some marking this morning. Pass it one to your left. No? Okay. <laughs> all right. We'll try it again. We'll do some church quizzes. But we read a chunk of the Apostle Paul's testimony and his massive transformation where he went from persecuting Christians and killing Christians to being one of the most influential church planters, biblical authors, leaders, and disciples of Jesus in all of history. And what happened? That's what we're going to take a look at this morning. So we're going to go back to that. Uh, we're in Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 10. We're going to read through some of this and just talk about Paul's transformation. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's dive in on that word. Still trying to please people. Something happened where you can even just look at this one statement right here. Something happened to Paul where he was doing something and he's moved into doing something different. He's adapted, he's changed, and he's now focused on being what's implied here, being a servant of Christ. He had a previous way of life, and if he was still working on that way, which he says here, focused on pleasing people, doing the popular mainstream thing of his day, he would not be a servant of Christ. So let's talk about that. What's going on? Before we do that, uh, 
what Paul was actually experiencing was something called tunnel vision. Not tunnel vision, the sight condition that affects your vision. I've actually known a few people who have gone through that where you literally start seeing uh, it gets darker, harder to focus, and it gets smaller and smaller, and you can't see the peripherals of stuff around you. But sometimes we use that term to apply to a psychological issue where you just focus in so pointedly and clearly that you can't see and you lose sight of everything happening around you. And this is actually a pretty common thing. So here's a real application, real true story, and I got to learn from and experience some of this too a little bit. But uh, so there's a device called an AED. Stands for Automated External Defibrillator. Historically, usually a device that's contained for hospitals, professional medical staff, but over the last uh, several years, uh, a while back now even, I think, but it's become much more consumer accessible. Uh, you can literally buy these in hospitals. When they became a lot cheaper and more accessible, this actually had a dramatic, massive increase into the su survivability of heart attacks or having heart issues if you weren't immediately in access of an ambulance or a hospital. Up to 30% increased chance of surviving a heart attack with these devices. So they're all over the place. They're in in pools, in, in pretty much any public space. We've got one here in the church, in the back corner, probably a good thing to know here actually. Uh, they're all over, really effective, if they're used correctly. So when these started coming out and becoming more popular, Red Cross did a training course for them, just an overview of how they work. They added into their first aid programs, uh, taking a look at the different styles. They're all pretty similar how to apply the pads and how to troubleshoot different things. And then what comes in the kits, because it comes with a few different, like there's pads for kids, pads for adults. There's a razor, like a little shaver in the kits too. Because if you come across somebody who needs this kit who has such an incredibly hairy chest that the pads can't physically touch the skin, you've got to shave the hair off. Now, so what happened after a while, Red Cross started realizing after uh, a couple years of testing and reporting that often these AEDs weren't being administered in a timely enough fashion because overwhelmingly people were fixated on having to shave the person's chest regardless. Even though this is something that only needs to happen on like a select, very specific occasion, it was like the focused tunnel vision of like, hey, wait, get the shaver, go shave all the hair off, and actually caused some loss of life and issues. So they revised the course and they cut that part out. They said that's too distracting, but they still kept a lot in. And then the next thing that happened is they found people started fixating on another thing where it says uh, electronic devices immediately next to the AD can cause interference. So then people got fixated on doing the rounds, the whole building, turn off the computers, shut the lights off. And they kind of missed the point where it's really just saying like, don't have a cell phone like on top of the machine or on the guy's like chest pocket. But people, it, you become so fixated on these like bizarre little details. What, one of the first aid courses I did back in college when we were doing some like backcountry rescue stuff, we had an instructor who spent like an entire day just focusing on how to get yourself out of a tunnel vision mindset because that's one of the biggest causes to uh, aggravated injury in first aid scenarios. And we did this thing where it's just like take a step back and, and not focus on the small issues. I even experienced this with a car crash. I attended to a man who had lost control, hit a telephone pole. He, he was okay chatting with him as early in the morning. So like five, 10 minutes later, people started coming around and right away there's this hyper moment of like, the airbags went off, he must have a punctured lung. And people were freaking out and trying to pull stuff away. And I said, just maybe, but I've been talking with him for like 10 minutes here. Like 
you, you focus in on small details, especially when it's emotionally heightened. It is in, like an intense moment when adrenaline's pumping. When we get passionately involved in something, there's something human nature about fixating on small details, on focusing in and then losing sight of everything that's happening around. This is what was happening to Paul in his previous life. It's something that he found himself, and not just a victim of a moment of tunnel vision, but he actually became part of a steady lifestyle of fixation on a, a specific belief that became such a powerful guide in his life. He went extremist and missed out on God at work, on Jesus present in his life. So let's, get, let's pick this up. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. fathers. So, He's giving us an insight here to where he was at. He was like head over heels, focused in, poured in on this thing in his faith, in his belief set. Specifically, Paul, originally at this time, he was named Saul. Same man, different name because of this massive change in his life. He was a Jewish man by faith and culture, but specifically within that, he was a Pharisee, part of this group called the Pharisees. Uh, and here's a description from uh, an ancient historian, uh, Roman-Israeli historian named Flavius Josephus, who wrote all about Judaism and the culture of in Jesus' day, specifically to the Roman people. Actually, the works of Josephus are one of the biggest non-biblical, uh, revered pieces of history literature that help us verify the authenticity of the Bible's history. But So this is a quote from Flavius Josephus uh, talking about Judaism. There was a certain sect of men that were Jews who valued themselves highly upon the exact skill they had in upholding the law of the fathers. They made men believe that they were highly favored by God because of this. They grew to a capacity of opposing or validating kings. They found influence with a multitude of people. They were called the sect of the Pharisees. They were a cunning sect. Socially elevated, they conducted the courts of worship and charter and all social acts. So these were the popular group. These were the leaders, the people in charge. The word Pharisee actually means set apart or separate. They were the separatists in a sense. Likely the name Pharisee actually probably started almost as a slur, as something derogatory to kind of make fun of from the common people. Like if we were to call people elites, right? Or stuck up or whatever, something like that. But eventually just became so commonplace and normal that it was just adopted and they gained the popular vote and confidence of all the people. Uh, they had an extreme addiction to following rules, so much that they made rules about rules about rules over and over again. And the thing about the Pharisees, especially if you've grown up in the church reading the Bible, it's so easy to think of them as the bad guys, right? You've got, there's Jesus, the good guys, Pharisees, the bad guys, as the villains in the context of the Bible. but. The reality is the Pharisees in that time, in the majority of people's eyes, they were the good guys. They were, most of their actions were good. They had good hearts. They were the ones that were actually working to restore Israel onto the right path. They were the ones that actually took a disaster of a culture and said, we need to refocus and dive down and go back in towards building relationship with God. We need to learn to be obedient again. They actually had a bit of a statement that could be translated as a sovereign return to the attendant guidance of our Lord. Literally, it could be translated as like, make Israel great again. 
That was this group. They were the ones that everyone looked up to, and they led all the religious and cultural efforts. So this is why it was so countercultural when Jesus started opposing them and calling out all of the stuff in their lives. Why did Jesus do that? Because they became so fixated on the system, on their cause, on the process that they were going on, on those systems of rules that they did, that they actually completely forgot their purpose and they left God out of it. They created for themselves this religious system and passion and ignored God, which was their initial inspiration. And Paul was, as he describes himself in Philippians 3.5, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was like an important, notable man in this. Eusebius, another ancient historian, noted that Paul would have been a famous historian in religious context, even if he didn't have this uh, conversion experience to Jesus because he was so influential and well-trained in the Pharisaic tradition. So why is this important? Because it's so easy to look back in history and think we're much better. We're more tame. We don't do stuff like that anymore. We don't have systems of rules and oppression and religious leaders that ignore God out of it all the time. Um, But actually, I think what's really important is to switch our mindsets there. We often read the Bible seeing ourselves as people who would listen to Jesus in a heartbeat and the Pharisees as the bad guys, as the villains. But actually, we need to be reading the Bible that we are the Pharisees who need to listen to Jesus. We think we're the good guys often, and we actually need to hear Jesus. And the amazing thing is, when Jesus spoke, a lot of the Pharisees listened to him and changed their ways and followed Jesus from this. But let me give you some of the evidence, I think. So in North America, uh, less so in Canada, a lot of these studies and stories come out of uh, the United States, but we're all part of this North American, Western world together. The Christian vote is still one of the most um, powerful political motivators, and yet our countries aren't that Christian, are they? Um, Despite a lot of modern views and angst against religion, um, numerous studies, one study specifically found overwhelmingly people would be more comfortable having Christian neighbors move in next door than any other religion or non-religious people group coming in. So there's a lot of cultural influence we have there as a people group. Uh, Historically, religious fervor and focus has actually justified wars and genocides, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the church has... Christianity, people who claim to follow Jesus have way too close ties with stuff like that. We can't ignore it. Even more recently, uh, some specific extreme acts. In 2009, a man named Scott Roeder, a passionately pro-life convinced man, went into his church one day and shot and killed a man who was a doctor who performed abortions, all in the name of preserving life. At the same time, stuff is happening where you have a um, Raina Rapp, who is a cultural uh, humanitarian anthropologist, wrote a book that was intending to highlight progress of uniting all of mankind towards further progress and leaving behind our dark ages, wrote uh, statements like, due to medical advances in precision with abortion practices, we can selectively and effectively eliminate non-preferred traits in our gene pool. These are statements from, that you would hear from war criminals, and yet they were both massively celebrated actions that people took. We are not that far removed from being tunnel vision focused just by a set of guiding rules like the Pharisees were. Those are extreme examples, and there's always religious tunnel vision that, re- that derail our intentions of faith, 
but I think that there's a more common and much more likely form of tunnel vision that we can all relate to much easier. We get caught up in heated discussions of whatever divisive topic has come up in our community. We start to focus on this issue and make our identity entirely about this movement. The small specific details cause us to lose track of probably what our initial motivation was. We lose the people involved and what's actually at stake, the relationships and the bigger context of what is really going on here. That there's Jesus Christ who is trying to enter into the world and bring salvation to people. So let me ask you a few questions here and tell me if you can relate to any of these. Or you can even start by thinking if you know of somebody who you've seen this in and then flip it on yourself because you probably can apply it to yourself. Have you moved on any point uh, when you've kind of got caught up in a passionate movement, have you moved from being people-focused to rules-focused? The Pharisees, including Paul, actually started off with massive pieces like being hugely supportive of the poor, of healing the sick, of being supportive of people, but they created such systems of rules around their faith that they ended up following the rules and ignoring that. A famous story has Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath, the day of rest, and the Pharisees were livid about it because their systems of rules said that that couldn't happen and there was, there was no loophole to it. And Jesus said, isn't your point to support people? Which is also true. So, so listen to this. If, if someone comes to you expressing pain or hurt or even joy or excitement for something that's happened, how quickly do you simply go to saying something that was right or wrong with what happened to them or what they did? Or are you able to actually just start with empathizing with and being close with somebody? We have a core value in this church of unity, which says, how am I celebrating or valuing relationship over my opinion? So even with this, something like, um, like honestly, I'm just going to say it because it's funny. It's staring me in the face. Masks. This side of the church is all blue masks. And over here, there's a lot more like section of just like black and darker masks. And here, it's all like fabric masks. But masks have become the most annoying and the most divisive topic happening constantly in our lives, both whether we're following it or wearing it or it's annoying. Are you able to meet somebody's needs and not have the mask be an absolute inhibitor, even though it's the safe thing that somebody is telling us to have to do all the time? Or at the same time, are you constantly stuck fighting the system, needing to disrupt everything, fight the man, and ignore the impact you might be having on vulnerable people around you? Are you able to even just wear a mask if it's supportive for somebody, or move past wearing a mask if there's somebody who's been left behind by these systems that are supposed to be actually protecting? See, there's sometimes a bit more gray when Jesus enters in and says it's not about the rule system. You actually have to see people and their needs. So have you moved from being people-focused to rules-focused? Another one, have you, been, have you moved from being means-focused, process, to ends-focus? Statements like the means justify the ends, the ends justify the means, whichever. Have you, have you started to make statements like at whatever cost to get here, it doesn't matter how it goes about that's the logic that the church throughout history has used to justify heinous acts like war, saying it's at whatever cost to get peace, but that's not actually what Jesus said. He didn't say make peace at whatever cost. He said live at peace. The means matters. How we do stuff matters. And lastly, have you become hyperbolic in your languaging, in your thoughts, in your statements? Is everything either an extreme for or against? 
is an enemy of my enemy, my friend now is somebody on my side or working against me at all, all times? Are you making statements like, you never do, or you always, you hate, or you just love? In a small way, I think of even in my relationship, my marriage, sometimes when I'm tunnel vision focused, having a bit of a fight with my wife, I'll say things like, you never do, even though it's like two times it's happened, right? Can you relate to that? You get a little bit extreme. So have you started getting super hyperbolic and black and white about things? At the end of it, there's a statement here that one of my professors in college said that I thought we could really relate to is, said, beware of the little Pharisee that's inside all of us. So how do you snap out of these moments when you get tunnel visioned and sucked in and you're starting to miss people, if you can identify with any of those above statements? Checking in on yourself and analyzing with these things is a good start, but uh, we actually need something to snap us out of it, something external. There's a good viral video out there, a compilation of uh, infants having total freakouts, uncontrollable sobbing, just freaking out, and then the parents come in, and so there's like a few of these in a row, where they like throw a, they take a Kraft single slice of cheese and like throw it on their face, and it just, the kid just stops, pauses, and peels this piece of cheese off their face, and it's like completely fine, staring at this cheese, sometimes eating it. Uh, my daughter, Adia, she's just four months old, so she gets in these moments, too. She's just freaking out, just crying. It, like, drives your mind insane. You think, what on earth can I do? Uh, and I found, like, just gently blowing on her face. Like, gently. I'm not a bad parent. Just <laughs> blowing on her face, and she just has a bit of a reflex, just... And sometimes snaps out of it. Sometimes it makes it way worse, actually, I'll admit that. Uh, I, I didn't have a piece of cheese, so that's what it needs. I'm not divine. Paul's point here, though... He's, he's going to pick it up in Galatians 1.15. He needed somebody to snap him out of it, and it wasn't just going to be a, a set of rules or a five-step plan or a 12-step program or whatever. There's no mantra. He needed Jesus to enter in. So chapter 1, verse 15, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul got snapped out of it. Jesus entered in. Paul's whole point in the letter of Galatians here is focusing on the statement we've called Jesus plus nothing. And here he's even re-emphasizing the fact that there is no mantra, no self-help book, no statement, no speaker or influencer on our planet right now that actually will be able to help you in the same way that Jesus can actually help you out. Because I'm convinced that humanity, one of our things is we love to fixate on stuff. We will always find the next thing to just pour into and passionately focus on. Some of us louder than others, but even in an introverted way, we do it. So there's two things we need here. We need Jesus to be the one to snap us out of it. And that's an open invitation. You can accept that at any point, but you also need to put that fixation onto Jesus and keep it there. Paul's testimony comes to this important pivotal moment where Jesus enters in, brings Paul out of his tunnel vision, his fixation, and what I love about this is what he continues on saying what his response was here. So it picks it up in verse 16. My immediate response was not to consult any human beings. I did not go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia, which like desert, isolating area, quiet time, and then later he returned to Damascus. It goes on even to say that Paul spent three years discerning this. See, Paul was so impacted by this moment I think he looked back and instantly snapped out of it and realized what he had been doing when he was so fixated and tunnel visioned in. He could only see this tiny little piece of what he was doing and missed the damage that he was causing. He missed Jesus at work. He missed 
He thought he was doing the right thing. And now he has this shame and this guilt and looking back, and he knows it was because of being impulsive. He knows it was because of being reactionary. Impulsive reaction is very closely linked to tunnel vision ways of, of living. So Paul didn't just snap back and start planting churches. I think that's what we often read and think about. This came out of the Bible study we did last week, very appreciative of this observation, focusing on the fact that Paul waited three years of discerning and making sure just between him and God that this was actually the direction to do. He did not want to get caught up in another set of rules or religious fervor again. So he took patience to discern this. There's a few other pieces. So he didn't impulsively react. Another thing Paul didn't do is he didn't blame something or someone based on his past actions. I think we're often culprits of this when we feel guilty about something we did. We suddenly clamor to find something that we can blame to or at least hold something up to blame for that. But Paul owns this in his testimony, even here in the letter to the Galatians. He just says, yeah, I did this. I needed Jesus to pull me out of it. But this was me. I wasn't part of it. Just, I'm not blaming it on a movement. He owns it. And then the last thing is he stays centered on God. He keeps his fixation on God. For three years, all he says is, in the statement there before in the verse, uh, he didn't consult any other human beings. Just him and God is necessary to snap out of it. So this is an incredibly important lesson for us as a church right now. The world around us is increasingly tunnel-visioned, focusing on small details, forming divides everywhere we can find. And what we cannot afford to do as the church, as followers of Jesus, is get sucked into that vortex of division. Focusing on this issue or that issue and completely missing what's at stake here. Listen clearly here. Here's, like, this is a big thing because I don't want to be misunderstood. So listen clearly here. I'm not saying that you cannot stand up for what you believe in. I've got my opinions, believe me, my wife has opinions. There's oftentimes I get caught up in the moment and I spew it out and I pour out what I think about this thing or that thing. It often comes at the consequence of causing damage to a relationship or to people who actually could have a chance to meet Jesus in their life and I put that block in there. But I'm not saying you can't stand up for what you believe in. What I am saying is that you're in danger of losing your sight the big picture of everything going around. You're in danger of losing the peripherals of seeing what is actually happening, of something much bigger in our world because there is sin in our world. You are experiencing sin as well. And you can't let your cause or your stubborn rule following become your identity and remove your effectiveness at actually experiencing Jesus' love. So look at how Paul responds here, picking this up in verse 23. He's talking about how people responded to uh, hearing the testimony of Paul. So they only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Are people praising God because of your actions, because of what you're standing up for, because of what you're making statements on on Facebook? Are people being led towards God? Every time Jesus was confronted with, the Pharisees would try to trap him into a divisive topic. They would say, pick this side or that side, Jesus. And instead, he would push it back and challenge both sides and say, here's where you've missed the point and direct them back towards God. He would take people off of earthly dialogues and point them back towards God, towards eternity, towards what's actually going on. There's eternity, there's sin, and there's salvation. And 
bringing people towards praising God is not going to happen because of a political movement or a protest or by good rule following or by social distancing. No amount of mandates or rights is going to do that or churchy manners or acting and dressing a certain way. It's going to only happen by sharing the grace and love of God the way Jesus did to Apostle Paul coming into his life. The term slippery slope is thrown around a lot. There's a slippery slope in the world that affects all of us, and that is tunnel vision and being distracted away from sin is what the devil loves, actually, when we stop paying attention to the sin in the world. But here's a question. Can you lay down your rules to meet somebody in need? Can you overcome your cause to empathize with somebody who just needs to be loved in the moment and needs some care and compassion? Can you move past a fear of obedience to this rule or this mandate to actually reach somebody who's been left behind? Can you snap out of that moment? Can you still pray authentically and wholeheartedly for somebody across the aisle on the other side of the divide? This is an opportunity for followers of Jesus to not fall into the trap that the world wants to follow in constantly and instead be rooted on the love and grace of Jesus, centered and fixated on purely as a response, not picking a side on anything, but saying, this is how I want you to find Jesus in your life. Point people towards God. I'll end this with a statement that I heard from a pastor friend of mine that really reshaped the way I thought about this when I was just getting heated into wanting to pick a side on this thing or that thing. He said, I can imagine a conversation with Jesus at the end of all this in eternity. He's not going to be congratulating us on saying, you, you, you picked the right side of that debate. Instead, he's going to be saying, how did you lead people to me? How did you show people my love? How did you bring forward my message of salvation into your life, into my own life, into the world around you? This is a timely, truth, hard-hitting message. And I will just even offer the invite to that if, if anything's been misunderstood, chat with me. I would love to dialogue with you further about this. If this concept of Jesus coming into your life feels foreign, far-fetched, or new to you, this is an open invitation from Jesus. He says, I'm willing, I'm here. It might not happen with the same kind of moment of uh, what's called like a theophany that Paul experienced where Jesus literally came present to him, blinded him. That's... Not too common, but there are miraculous stories like that too through dreams. People encounter Jesus. But there's also an invitation where we get to take that first step, that decision to follow him. I would love to introduce Jesus to you as well. Find me after the service. We can chat. But I do want to just pray for all of us before we go here in the week. So join me in that. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the way you reach us, God, that you overcome what's going on in our life. God, you overcome our tunnel vision that you snap us out of it. God, like the kids who just needed the slice of cheese, God, you, you can enter in. And God, I pray for us when we might not even know it, if we are just focused in or fixated on something that is distracting us from your cause, from your truth, your work and redemption in our life, God, you help snap us out of it. Not to remove us from dialogues in this world, God, but to focus us back on you as our fixation. God, I pray that we might see the big picture, that we might see now in the peripherals of who we're affecting, who we're actually influencing, who we either are hurting or celebrating. God, that we stop just focusing on the small details, but actually see the big picture of what's at stake, that we see the relationships that are important in front of us. And I pray that we see people and we see the way your grace can actually influence them in the midst of device, uh, division, and conflict. 
God, I pray that you just go with us here with a message that can actually be impactful in changing the world as we're in such turbulent times. God, and our world needs redirection. God, we pray for an end to both this virus and to uh, just oppression that's happening all over the place that's causing issues, that's preventing families from meeting and gathering together. God, that's preventing people from reaching and disrupting relationships. God, we pray for an end of it. We, we want that comfort, but God, mostly what we want is the distractions to be lessened in this world that we can focus on you. So we pray for your intervention in this world. God, we end all of this just asking for you to be with us as we go forward from here. God, to just impact this with a sense of hope and encouragement that you are there willing and patient to take us on over and over and over again. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, everyone, thanks for this week. Parents, uh, your kids are hanging out in the back room waiting for you uh, to pick them up. And other than that, uh, I'm here hanging out. Love to chat with you. The leadership team is here hanging out. Love to chat with you at any point too. Have a great week.